2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his scheme. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perished. To the one we are the smell of death to the other, the fragrance of life. And who was equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Uh, good morning. And for our visitors or newcomers, good to see you here. My name is Evan. I'm the associate pastor. This morning, we're continuing our series, reading through 2 Corinthians together. So as we approach God's word, let's pray for his guidance and his spirit to uh, open our hearts and minds to understand what he's put here before us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will and with spiritual wisdom as we study your word so that we will grow together as a people who walk in a way that pleases you in daily life. In Jesus' name. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, the very quotable uh, English academic and author, uh, once wrote that everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And everybody kind of probably has this vague idea. We, we kind of know that Christianity is all about forgiveness. And yet, when you really think about it, forgiveness is actually quite a difficult thing. Uh, I've been following the story this week uh, of Mason Greenwood, I don't know if many of you would have heard of him, but on the next slide, there's a photo of him. As you look at the photo, maybe some of you might even recognize what sport this is and uh, that he played, well, was playing for uh, probably the biggest club in the world, Manchester United. So even if you don't follow football, I'm guessing you've probably heard of Manchester United. And I've been following his story because in January 2022, uh, sorry, he's a, he's a young English footballer. He's only 21 years old. And uh, he's touted as one of the best prospects that, that England have. But in January 2022, he was actually arrested uh, because he was accused of uh, uh, abusing his girlfriend. And I won't, I'll spare you the detail, but it was some very, very serious uh, charges that were laid against him. And Manchester United kind of seemed like they wanted to hold on to this really good player. They didn't sort of stand him down. Well, they did stand him down immediately, but they didn't sack him. And it's, the saga's gone on and on and on. But the charges have actually been uh, recently dropped, which doesn't actually mean that he's innocent, and uh, there seems to be some good evidence that something's gone on. Um, but you know, the, 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 the pressure in the last 18 months or so has been, uh, on the one hand, people saying you've got to sack him, you can't keep a player like this on, on your books, uh, but just this week he's been picked up by a, a Spanish club, Getafe. 
And uh, I was watching videos of him being unveiled to sort of adoring fans. And uh, one woman said, you know, he's paid his time. I think, he, I think he should play, and I'm excited that he's at the club. Now, look, I have to say, I don't know what to make of that situation. Uh, people want to say sportsmen aren't role models. I'm sorry they are. They're paid squillions of dollars to do what they do and to do what a lot of us would love to do for free, like love doing for free. Uh, and so they are role models. But we probably all think of different public scandals. I just, you know, kind of think of sporting scandals. Sport's my thing. There's political scandals. There's social scandals. There's celebrity gossip and all these sorts of things. And there seems to be this, uh, this, this tension. We don't quite know what to do when somebody mucks up. Because on the one hand, there are people who call for immediate cancellation and forever cancellation. On the other, some people just want to say, oh, just get over it. But neither of those responses seem adequate. We struggle with what to do with people who've been caught out in some sort of wrongdoing. And we struggle with what forgiveness means, when to offer it, how to offer it. And it's really not easy. And as I thought about that and I thought about the passage that we're going to study in, in 2 Corinthians today, I thought that this, you know, it just reminded me that forgiveness sounds like a lovely idea until we actually have something to forgive and then it becomes more difficult. But we all know that, that, that forgiveness is central to Christianity. And so we have to work through then, how do we show forgiveness? What, what does forgiveness look like? And as we look at 2 Corinthians, we see that the passage we read this morning is going to help us a little bit with that. We're going to see the impact of forgiveness on this church and on the world in which the Corinthians live. And then we'll see what impact forgiveness can have for us and in our world. Now, we see a church in 2 Corinthians that has struggled with conflict. And, uh, and that's the situation that, uh, that we're reading into at the moment. So when we see what's going on, we, we, we see that uh, the issues aren't always explicitly told uh, what they are. That this church has issues they need to work out how they will move through these issues together. I'm struggling with my notes. I accidentally print double-sided. That's the problem. That's where I'm up to. Now, there are principles for us to remember uh, in, in this passage this morning, and I'm going to pick out three of those as, we, as I looked at the structure of the passage. It almost looks like there's two kind of unrelated blocks of text, um, uh, one from uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 5 to 11, then it seems to go on to something different in 12 to 17, but I think, the, as I thought about an overall theme, it seemed to me that what we're seeing is the impacts of forgiveness, firstly on individuals, on, on a, sin, a particular sinner and on his relationship with the church, and then in verses 12 to 17, on the culture in which we live, the people around us will be impacted by our willingness to offer forgiveness to those who might have stuffed up. So, as I said before, we, we see in uh, 2 Corinthians a church that is, that, is, that is hurting. A church that is hurting. And in verse 5, we start to see a little bit about what this hurt, uh, what this hurt is. We see in verse 5 uh, that the, the first thing I want to think, think about this morning, what are the impacts of forgiveness? The first thing is that we want to see that sinners uh, are restored. As we think about forgiveness, what's the goal of us offering forgiveness is that, that sinners would be restored. Now, I wrestled with how to word that because that word sinners, I don't know what that conjures up for you. It's kind of a bit of a loaded term. I almost thought, should I change that to relationships restored? Because that's, that is what we're seeing uh, happen. But what I wanted to emphasize and what I think Paul wants to emphasize is that when somebody has mucked up, 
the goal is not just to punish them. The goal is actually to see a sinner restored, to restored to relationship with God and relationship uh, with the church. So look at verse 5. You can see that this, there's a person in this church who has caused Paul significant grief. And more than that, Paul says he's grieved the church. Now, most likely the commentators say, as I read that, this was somebody who'd probably been sowing seeds of division. He's one of those people that was teaching falsely. He had tried to uh, pull the church away from Paul's teaching. uh, And he's trying to split the church. So we're reading out of the background of of the arguments and the rest of the letter, the things that Paul's arguing against. We're also reading in the context of 1 Corinthians. Some people thought maybe that this was an immoral kind of a person. But whatever it is, and and it's not explicitly said there, he's caused the church some grief in some way by his behaviour and by sowing disunity in the church. And perhaps some of you have experienced some really significant conflict and arguments in a church. Perhaps some of you even... Uh, experienced a split in a church and it is awful it is hurtful and it does cause grief and so you can imagine then why some in the corinthian church maybe they were reluctant to offer this person forgiveness as people who follow jesus and come together as his people to serve the world to serve jesus and to serve the world you know we're usually surrounded by other people who are passionate about jesus who are passionate about ministry and so tensions can run high when we disagree And that seems to be what's happened in this church in Corinth just uh, a few decades after Jesus has risen from the dead. There's already divisions in that church. And it seems as there's been somebody leading that. And what does that mean for that person who's been leading this division? Are they meant to kick him out, cancel him forever? Are they sort of just meant to, ah, don't worry about it, just move on? Well, I think the answer's a little more uh, complex in a way than that. No, Paul says in verse 6 that whatever punishment has been uh, given to this person, is sufficient. So you see, the sinner somehow was punished for, or disciplined perhaps, you might say, by the church. That There was some consequence for the sin that this person had brought into the church. But now, the time for that uh, has finished. That punishment, it was probably, most likely, some sort of exclusion from the church meeting for a little while. If you're going to cause trouble... You can't meet with us for a while. But now Paul's saying it's time, that, 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 that time is done. It's time to bring that person back into the fold. And so if you look at verse 7, we see now what is the goal of this, of this consequence, of this punishment. is to bring the person back in at some point, to show them love. And it's, it's to make sure that this person is not uh, brought to excessive sorrow. What does that mean? I think excessive sorrow would be the point where that person despairs. Despairs of a relationship with God, despairs of a relationship with the church, just believes there's no way forward and maybe even loses faith. Whatever consequence might be imposed because of a sin in a church, it's meant to restore somebody to relationship with God and relationship with that church. Uh, If there are consequences of sin, and there usually are, then they're meant, to just, they're meant to limit the spread of that sin throughout the rest of the church and to turn someone back to God in right relationship with him, in right relationship with others. And that sounds like it could be quite a tricky thing to get right, and I'm sure it is. And you see there that the church worked on that together. 
It wasn't something they did alone. Obviously, God is with them by his spirit, helping them to work out how to restore that relationship. But of course, it also says that the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So somehow they've worked together on this. This public kind of sin, this public division in the church has been worked through together and the majority have decided this is the course. And so while it's hard to together, uh, we can do this in God's strength. Now, I think that while this sounds really hard, it sounds hard that there'd be a consequence for sin in our church life. It sounds hard then to work out, if if we're going to call somebody on that, how we then restore uh, one another to fellowship. But in some ways, I think it actually is really good news for us all as well. Because all of us can probably think of a conflict or a fight or an argument that we've been involved in where we know that we share some responsibility for that conflict. We know we've done the wrong thing. And if we're unable to come back from any mistake, I mean, if we're just completely cancelled, then imagine how overwhelmingly oppressive that would be. I can just imagine if we felt like there was no way back if we'd stuffed up. There was no sense that we could be offered forgiveness and received back into fellowship. Well, we'd just cover our sin. We'd want to deny it. We'd want to pretend uh, that we never made mistakes. Or maybe if we were called on somebody, it would escalate the conflict because we'd lash out. We wouldn't admit error. We'd only, uh, we'd only blame other people. And so this is actually an invitation for us to own our mistakes, to move forward in, in repentance and know that together we will be a people who offer forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness means that each of us, whenever we have sinned, can be restored. So look at verse 8. Rather than keeping this person on the out of the church, it's to embrace him again, to show him love. show that person that they're welcome back into the church, back to serve uh, and reaffirm their love for him. So in this case, forgiveness isn't just about sort of finishing a a punishment and that's it. It's actually about drawing somebody back in, embracing them in love. So I think there's a couple of principles for us to remember under this point that sinners are restored. Number one is that sin does have consequences. And I'd hope that if someone was sinning in a kind of way that brought disunity to our church, that if someone was acting kind of really obviously, uh, immorally, that we'd have that uh, that courage to confront that person. Uh, Because we believe that sin is damaging to people, to our relationship with God and to our community. But we'd want to be making sure we're addressing the issue and doing that in love. Because the second principle from these these verses, verses 5 to 8, to bear in mind, is that the goal is not just punishment, it's to restore the sinner. To see that somebody has learned from their mistake, to see that they want to repent, turn back to Jesus. To recognise then that while they've done their time, while the, the, the punishment has been uh, sufficient, we can bring them back into the fold, we can love them, we can move forward together servicing uh, serving Jesus together. Now, that's going to obviously require significant prayer, significant time, depending on the severity of the issue, right? And, and significant wisdom in working that out together. We've all, we've all probably seen really public scandals. We've all experienced uh, difficulties in our relationships just with one another, I'm sure. 
But uh, in the last few years anyway, we've seen lots of high-profile Christian leaders caught up in a scandal of, of some sort or, or another. And, you know, it kind of has, has made me squirm a bit, feel a bit uncomfortable about how quickly some of them return to a sort of a preaching kind of a schedule, a preaching tour around the place. I don't think this passage necessarily gives justification for that. Uh, forgiveness, though, is, is about demonstrating love and, and letting go of any sense of revenge, any sense of vengeance, any sense of resentment that we might hold toward one another. But it doesn't necessarily mean there's no consequences. It doesn't necessarily mean that the restored person may not have some boundaries in place. And it may mean that some may not be suitable for leadership in church for some time. As I said, not easy. We have to be wise about how we apply those sorts of things. While remembering the goal is to see someone restored in fellowship with God, and in fellowship with his people, to see people warmly embraced and loved again by the church. Now, the second observation from this passage I want to make this morning is that when we forgive, another impact is that our faith is verified. Our faith is verified. That is, our faith is shown to be genuine faith. We're shown to be genuine disciples of Jesus when we can forgive other people. And we see that in that uh, next section, verses 9 to 11. In verse 9, Paul says that he longs to see obedience in the church in Corinth, or the churches in Corinth, in that region. And he wants to see that when people are forgiven by Jesus, that shapes the way they treat other people. It has an impact on the, in the church life. And that impact is that we can become a community that offers forgiveness to other people when they hurt us. When we do that, when we become those kind of people... Well, that shows that we've truly understood what Jesus has done for us. We've truly been impacted by the Holy Spirit showing us what Jesus has done for us. The Bible says that we forgive just as we have been forgiven by Jesus. Now, when you look at verse 10, you see that Paul kind of, he downplays the kind of hurt that that person uh, who's grieved him has caused him. And it's almost a throwaway line, so to speak. He says, if there's anything to forgive, he's more, Im- he's more concerned by the impact of the conflict on the church than on, on himself. And he says, if the church has forgiven and is ready to move on, then so is he. And this person's forgiven in the sight of Christ, which means that, uh, that, that it's not Paul's judgment on the situation that matters, it's Jesus. And he's confident that Jesus wants the church to demonstrate forgiveness to this individual. And in verse 11, he gives another reason why this is so important. He says he doesn't want Satan to have a foothold. He doesn't want Satan to have some sort of power or influence in the church. Now, you know, that sounds pretty uh, weird, doesn't it? Let's not sort of think all exorcist here. What he means is that when we're divided, when our church is, is conflicted, that's exactly how Satan or God's enemy, our enemy, wants our church to be. And if we're unforgiving people then our church life is more in line with Satan's plans than God's. So it's a serious consequence he's wanting them to avoid. Not having that unforgiveness take root in the church so that it's almost more like we're following Satan's ways than God. Now Jesus illustrated this. Do you remember, I won't go through the detail of the parable for time, but in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable of an unmerciful servant or an unforgiving servant. 
He talks about somebody who has such a great big debt they can never pay it back, being forgiven by their master, but then they go out and find someone who has a smaller debt to them and they severely punish them. He says, what a hypocrite. You know, if you've been forgiven a great debt, then you will want to be somebody who goes out and forgives others. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, you can look that up in Luke 11, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we sin, uh, as we forgive those who sin against us. It's a very simple principle. If you have been forgiven, you want to be a forgiving person. If you expect forgiveness from God, well, you've got to show forgiveness to other people. Simple principle, maybe with a difficult application, because you might be there thinking, you know, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what someone has done to me, and I don't, I'm sure. Forgiveness sounds easy until you have something to forgive. But let's take heart from the fact that if God commands it, and we see clearly in his word that he does. For example, another, uh, another teaching, Colossians 3.13, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. If the Lord commands it, then he empowers us by his spirit to be able to do what he commands us to do. And we trust that that is the way that we will re- uh, that our church will experience the joy of godly living if we can do those things. Now, think about this. If anyone ever had a right to vengeance, if anyone ever had a right just to punish, to cut, off, to cut us off, if we ever had... Uh, that if we ever had... Um, if anyone ever had a right to punish for sin, it would be God because of the way that we've all treated him. Because of the consequence of sin. But in the cross of Jesus, we see that God accepts Jesus' death on the cross as the consequence for our sin and we pay none of that consequence ourselves. Jesus bore the price of forgiveness so that we could go free so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. Now, if we understand the enormity of that, then that will impact our relationships. It may not be easy, but we can do it. We can be a forgiving people because of God's work in us. Now, the next section I want to move on to is verses 12 to 17. And we'll see that in that section, the impact of us actually living this life of forgiveness the impact of us living this life of forgiveness means that we'll be loved by some and hated by others. We'll be loved by some and hated by others. You know, I I, uh, used to do scripture seminars at Castle Hill High School and I'd go there and uh, preach the gospel to all the students in in sort of assembly style thing. I I took an older fellow from church one time with me and he asked me, uh, we were there with a team from a bunch of other churches and he asked me, well, how do they receive you here? How do you think things go? I said, oh, generally, you know, it goes pretty well. They seem to like what we do. He said, oh, well, you mustn't be doing it right. <laughs> there was this sort of idea that if you were being faithful as a Christian, I've heard these in other circumstances as well, then people just won't like you. <laughs> well, you know, that might be true in some circumstances, but certainly not in others. Look at uh, verses 12 to 17. Let's go through those together. Paul talks about his travel plans in verse 12. He wants to go to uh, Troas to preach. He's got no uh, peace there because uh, he's unsettled in his his spirit. Titus wasn't there. He wanted Titus to be there so that he could tell him how the church in Corinth was going. Um, And so uh, Paul decides that he's going to move on. 
In verse 14, even though he's uncertain about what he should be doing and where he should be going in certain ways, he can give thanks to God. Because despite all his difficulties, Paul has the privilege of seeing God at work. And that's why he's thankful. Uh, He looks at what God's doing. He doesn't resent the difficulties that he's going through. And uh, he understands that Paul is opening doors, he's opening opportunities so that he can represent Jesus throughout the world. Now, in the next section, there's a a picture that Paul's original uh, readers would have been reasonably familiar with. It pictures uh, a triumphal procession. Now, what's that? It's a picture of Jesus being kind of like a, 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 a Roman general returning from a battle victorious. Uh, He's returning to Rome after a military victory with his defeated enemies in chains behind him. That was kind of something that would have have happened. The Roman generals had paraded through Rome. And Paul sees himself as being kind of captive to Christ, but in a way in which he's joyful. Uh, He's a joyful captive because he knows that where Christ goes is where it's good to go for him. And so the point he's making is that Christians are people who often look defeated to the world, maybe insignificant, without power, strength, authority, status in the culture. But the reality is they're going where Christ is going. They're going to eternal life in following Jesus. And so where Jesus goes, they go. And where they go, Christ goes with them. So that he can say, as they go and as they move throughout the world, Jesus' followers spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Again, they would have been familiar with this idea that when you celebrate something or sacrifice something, there's a smell that goes up, there's an aroma. And they spread that aroma with them wherever they go, and that's the knowledge of Jesus. And so as people hear that message of Jesus, there are two responses to that, actually. In verse 15, there are people who hear the gospel, they hear the message of forgiveness... And that is a sweet smell to them. That is as sweet as any perfume that money could buy. Sweetest incense. But then, of course, we should expect another response as we spread the message of Jesus. And that is some who smell it as the aroma of death. You're bad news to them. You smell like death to them. They hate the aroma of Christ, the knowledge of God that you spread. And notice it's the same aroma. I mean, the the aroma, the smell itself isn't bad. You know how different people associate different smells uh, with with different memories or different emotions. It's the same smell. People react differently, like the smell of, you know, eucalyptus kind of smoke, that burning, uh, that that smell might remind some people of great times sitting around the campfire. It might uh, be to others the smell of destructive bushfire. But that's what we're like in this world. As you go out your, uh, about your daily life, your actions, your words will have an impact on others and they will see Christ, so to speak, in you. They will see that you are somebody who carries the knowledge of Jesus with you. And some people will love that and some people will hate that. You know, I think sometimes we imagine that we are kind of this persecuted minority that we're beleaguered, that people just are going to hate us, they don't like us in the world, but um, be encouraged. That's not all people. In fact, research even shows, McCrindle research, uh, if you wanted to Google it, has shown that most people, if they know a Christian personally, actually like that person. It's not personal when people reject, uh, reject you because of Jesus. Some people will love that aroma, they'll love the opportunity to be forgiven by the God of this universe, and some people will see 
simply that they don't need to be forgiven. In fact, it's insulting to say they need forgiving. See, this aroma of Christ is sometimes the aroma that tells them that they've insulted God. They've treated, other, they've treated God poorly, badly, in a way that he doesn't deserve to be treated. And that they've treated others in a way that God's displeased with. And they hate that because they're in, their, in their own eyes, they're a good person. So we expect that. Now, as you hear that, you might echo Paul. Who's equal to such a task? Who wants to go out and be the one who represents Jesus to this world when we're going to have such mixed responses? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. None of us really has that strength. None of us has that strength in our own power. And in fact, none of us wants to be pointing to ourselves, whether we preach, whether we uh, are sharing Jesus, whether we're trying to live a life honouring God in our workplaces. We're not trying to point to ourselves and our own good life, our own good works and words, intellect. We're trying to point to Jesus and encourage people to check out Jesus for themselves. Like a hammer in the, uh, in the hands of a craftsman, we are just a tool that God in his kindness chooses to use in this world for the most important task in the world, to spread the knowledge of Jesus. And that's an incredible task. But of course, on our own, none of us really are up to it. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to encourage each other in that task. That's why we need to trust in Jesus as we do that. Because he promises that in our weakness, he will show his strength. And we'll get to that later on in 2 Corinthians. So that means also in verse 17 that Paul can say, he doesn't go and preach the message of Jesus for his own gain. He's not worried about what people think of him first and foremost. So he says he doesn't peddle for profit, doesn't demand to be paid for his ministry. He just preaches because it's the right thing to do because he loves and honours Jesus Christ. And so there's a responsibility for all of us to think through. How are you sincerely spreading the message of Jesus, being genuine in the way that you carry the message of Jesus in your daily life? Anything we do, we do where we're serving Jesus has to be from a, a deep sincerity because we love Jesus, because we love the people, not because we want to gain something for ourselves. That might be an organised church thing like in the AV or preaching or praying or serving morning tea or something. It might be just the way that you want to live daily at work. You do it sincerely, not because you think you're going to get something out of it. Because often you won't. Some people will love the message, some people will hate it. And yet because we love Jesus and love people, we want to spread the aroma of Christ. Well, you know, I've said a number of times to some forgiveness it's easy to say, much harder to do. To some, forgiveness may seem like a sign of, of weakness. But of course it's not. It's a sign of spiritual strength. And as Christians, we want to take what Jesus has done for us and apply that to our relationships in our world. Perhaps as you've sat here this morning, you can think of somebody who you struggle to forgive. Or perhaps you can think of ways in which you have not been bold to spread the aroma of Christ. Whatever it might be, uh, let's pray and let's encourage each other to be the kind of people and treat others as Jesus has treated us. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds just to maybe pray, maybe look over the passage, just think through who might you need to show forgiveness to, how might you need to be spreading that aroma of Christ, and then once um, we've given that about 30 seconds, I'll close in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you'll please strengthen us to be the aroma of Christ in this world, offering forgiveness and restoration even when we've been severely hurt. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have found in Jesus, that we can be restored into relationship with you. Please give us wisdom in knowing how to deal with conflict. Please unify us around Jesus and what he's done for us in restoring our relationship with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.